0: Welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation, and today we have a jam-packed episode for you. Uh, We start with a discussion with Ron Moore, who is the genius lawyer-slash-toxicologist-slash-red-seals-chef-slash-expert-in-everything, who's going to talk to us about different types of alcohol that can be produced either naturally in your body or get into your body through things like occupational exposure and result in false readings on different types of breathalyzers. And he's gonna go through all of the science around that and some steps that you can take if you think that you have had a test result that is unreliable due to some of these reasons. So this is must listen information if you're concerned, especially if you work as a hairdresser, as a painter, um, as a road paver. Uh, anything where you're exposed to chemicals, or if you're on a ketogenic diet, or if you have diabetes, must listen information. So joining us again on the Driving Law podcast is one of my favorite guests, Ron Moore, and I hope that nobody else is offended that I've said you're one of my favorite guests, Ron, but you are an expert in everything as far as I'm concerned. You know about Toxicology, you know about law, you're a lawyer, you're a toxicologist, you're a Red Seal chef. Um, you're you're basically Wonder Man.
1: Uh, well, thank you, Kyla. It's nice to be back. It's good to talk to you. And uh, I think we've got some really interesting topics uh, lined up for us today.
0: Oh, definitely. Um, I wanted to talk to you because you and I were having sort of a discussion um, over email on a, a listserv for the DUI Defense Lawyers Association about uh, volatile organic compounds that your body can produce if you're in a fasting state and some research that's been done on how those can affect breath tests. And I thought, perfect, let's talk about this. <laughs>
1: Yes, and that is a really good idea. I think the place that I wanted to start is a recent U.S. Supreme Court case called Birchfield versus North Dakota, which specified that you cannot refuse to take a breath test in the United States. Now, there is a diversity amongst the United States in the different states as to whether the person arrested gets to choose what chemical test they take or what the officer gets to choose. Uh, what the Birchfield decision did was say that, You could refuse to take a blood test and suffer the consequences, but that a breath test is a reasonable search after arrest, and so you could not uh, refuse to take a breath test. I think that means that there's going to be a lot more breath testing than blood testing in the future, and so talking about some of the issues that come up with breath testing would be appropriate for this time.
0: Can can you explain to me, because in Canada we've, we've had, for as long as I've been a lawyer, and a long time before that, it's just always been the law, you can't refuse any of the tests. The officer has to have grounds to make the demand, and they have to make a proper demand, and there's all the elements they have to comply with. But if they do, you can't refuse. You're legally obligated to comply. Why is there a distinction in U.S. law between breath and blood?
1: Well, that goes back to the U.S. Uh, Constitution and our Bill of Rights, the Fourth Amendment to uh, so the Constitution provides that you are to be secure in your person, place, houses, and and all that, against unreasonable searches. And the U.S. Supreme Court felt that invading the body, using a needle and puncturing the skin to take blood, was invasive, and it was an unreasonable search, unless there was some exigent circumstance that required it. And there's a variety of different types of exceptions to the Fourth Amendment that could apply. And one of the earlier cases back in the 1960s was Schmerber versus California, that kind of established that for a lot of people, they thought that just the dissipation of alcohol was an exigent circumstance, and that you know if there was a delay for any reason, we can go ahead and draw your blood just because your blood alcohol level is going away. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court finally decided uh, that that wasn't by itself sufficient, and that there would need to be some other exception to the Fourth Amendment such as consent, you can consent to the search, say, sure, take my blood, I don't care. Or they can still use extra circumstances if they can justify it. Um, One of the other exceptions would be a search incident to arrest, but the Supreme Court still felt that because of how invasive a blood test is, the even search incident to arrest wasn't enough to get past the Fourth Amendment's prescription against an unreasonable search or an invasive search. And because breath testing is so much less invasive, all you do is blow into the machine, uh, nothing is kept, nothing is saved, nothing can be used for any other purpose. The, it was such a reasonable alternative to a blood test that they could say, well, if you want a blood test, you have to get a warrant if the person doesn't give you consent. But breath tests are so easy, non invasive, doesn't keep anything. We're going to say that it's not reasonable to refuse that. that. If they have grounds to get one, you can't refuse to provide it.
0: Wow. Okay. That. I mean, to me, it makes sense. (laughs) But I, you know, I just logically in my in my Canadian law brain, I'm like, but it's it's all evidence of the offense, and so it's directly related to the arrest. But that's uh, the difference between our two constitutions. Um, Absolutely. So. When it comes to breath tests, there are a bunch of different ways that breath tests can be conducted. And I know you said, you know, the courts have said they're not that intrusive, but having done a bunch of different types of breath tests, some are a lot more difficult to do than others.
1: Right. And so I think where I wanted to go next is talking about the two different circumstances in which you could be asked to give a breath test and the different types of machines you might get asked to blow into. And so there are, certain types of machines that are very portable and can be used at roadside. And those are often used prior to arrest in a screening mode. And here in California, where I am, it's considered just another one of the field sobriety tests uh, to tell whether or not there's alcohol or if something else is causing the symptoms. But then because of California's uh, laws, uh, all relevant evidence is admissible. And the number the machine comes up with it's admissible as evidence even though wow. it's not supposed to be treated as evidence according to how the the uh, cases are describing the evidence and saying well this is just a field sobriety test it's a field sobriety test on steroids uh-huh. because that number is coming in uh as opposed to you can also uh take a test after arrest which is part of the evidence of your blood alcohol level that goes to whether you violated The per se statute of being above a certain level and as circumstantial evidence of whether or not you're too impaired to drive safely under the common law driving under the influence part of the statute. Uh, So uh, let's talk first about the tests that are more portable, the ones that are used in the field. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are different types of breath testers or different theories of operation, different mechanisms that breath testers use. Some are based on what's called a fuel cell, some are infrared, some are based on a, a semiconductor and some of them have combinations. Let me touch on the semiconductor ones first. These are often consumer grade uh, devices, very inexpensive. They use a uh, metal oxide semiconductor, which is uh, sensitive to alcohol vapor, but they're not terribly accurate. Uh, They have a wide margin of error, and they're subject to a lot of interference from some of the things we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, But some people will use them just to kind of get an idea. Do I need to call a taxi or an Uber or something? Or am I okay to get home? Uh, and as long as you recognize that these things aren't the most accurate things in the world, you know, they're great for parties and, and you know do I drive home or not, uh, but wouldn't be something that would be admissible as evidence under either circumstance. The fuel cell devices are also on the smaller side. They're typically handheld devices, but bigger than the semiconductor devices. And... Uh, Typically, more engineering has gone into the design of them, uh, especially the ones that are approved by our federal government for use as screen devices or as evidential devices. And we have a whole list of them that are approved for post-arrest evidential use.
0: What, what are the ones uh, that they use right now, like that are most often deployed in California?
1: Uh, you typically see one of uh, three different instruments being, or three or four different instruments being used at roadside in California. Uh, the Draeger seventy four ten or not seventy four ten the mm-hmm. uh, seventy five ten uh instrument uh the handheld device. Uh you also see uh, the intoximeters uh alcohol sensor four or AlcoSensor sensor five mm-hmm. and there's also an AlcoSensor sensor FST that I occasionally use more of them are either using the four or the five. Right. And then you also sometimes see a life FC twenty uh used by some of the agencies in California has a screening device and those most of those the uh, are also approved for post arrest evidential use the uh, you see those are used as screening devices
0: in in b c we're using the alka sensor fst um, for okay. all of our roadside testing so that's a that's a fuel cell device and just for the listeners, the semiconductor devices that you were talking about would be like those pocket bAC or the backtrack devices that you buy at London drugs or any grocery store. Oh. <laughs>
1: Right. Now, Backtrack makes both semiconductor and fuel cell-based devices. Uh, but a lot of the Backtrack devices you see that are available at a lot of the big box stores are their semiconductor versions. And, uh, you know, they have a place, but uh, the place is probably not in the courtroom. <laughs>
0: nope. <laughs> it's your pocket in your kitchen for entertainment.
1: <laughs> right. Um, um, so the okay. fuel cell devices work basically on a principle that there's an electrode In there, it's a platinum electrode and the alcohol reacts with an electrolyte on the platinum electrode, creates a voltage proportional to the amount of alcohol that's there and that can be converted into the blood alcohol level. So, uh, we were going to talk about the infrared devices. Infrared devices work on the principle that alcohol and other volatile organic molecules absorb infrared light at certain wavelengths and by using a filtered light source Uh, You can measure the absorption of the infrared light at those wavelengths and, again, calculate a blood alcohol level based on the absorption of the infrared light in the device. Infrared devices tend to be stationary. They're a little bit bigger and and, uh, a little more sensitive to vibration and and knocking around. So there are some that have been put in police cars, uh, in the trunk and such, or in the mobile DUI enforcement van. Um, Most of them are kept at the station where they've got a reliable power supply, and because they're bigger, they put them on a desk or a a counter and bring the subject to the device rather than the device to the subject.
0: Why is the power supply
1: important? Well, because you're dealing with absorption, you want to make sure that you're in its electrical uh, system, that your electrical supply to that is stable, and so you want to have a nice, uh, stable power supply for it, not something that's running off the car battery or something where you know the engine kicks on, you know it could uh, cause fluctuations in the voltages. It's just not a good thing for a measuring instrument to have fluctuating power. Okay. Would the nice affect... thing about the infrared devices. I'm sorry. Go well, ahead.
0: I was going to say, would it affect the infrared light, like the strength of the beam,
1: or? Well, you'd you'd have to check. I mean, it's, it's the strength it. of the beam or the calculations <laughs> it's doing. You just, I, it's just not a good idea to have fluctuating power. When you're using it as a measuring device, but I'm not sure exactly where in the device the problem is going to occur that, that could potentially cause problems. Uh, but one of the nice things about infrared is that it can monitor the blood alcohol or the breath alcohol level over the entire exhalation, whereas the semiconductors and the fuel cells take a snapshot. The infrared devices can watch the breath alcohol level change over time, and that is one of the ways you can look for mouth alcohol uh, as a potential contaminant or uh, and then we'll talk about the the volatiles in a minute, Uh, you have mechanisms to try and filter out or detect uh, the presence of other things that are there, Um, but especially the mouth alcohol. It's nice to be able to see the the slope of the breath alcohol profile change uh, before you take your final reading. So that's one of the advantages to having those. And there are some instruments that actually have both a fuel cell and an infrared bench in the instrument, so you can get two readings, compare them, and make sure that they're similar close to the same um, because some things will affect one system more than the other and if there's discrepancies you know something's wrong
0: and so would you say that the that latter type the combination fuel cell and infrared um, devices are the most the most accurate
1: or have the highest potential for accuracy (laughs) well i'm not sure it's the accuracy so much i would i would probably say it just a little bit differently and say it's the most robust and in that it's the least sensitive to things that could go wrong. Um, accuracy would be more a matter of is it properly calibrated to read alcohol if, you know, and the amount that's there. The robustness would say, all right, but if something else is there or if something is, is going wrong and we're getting a, a, what should be an invalid reading, can the instrument tell us that? And so the devices that have both fuel cell and infrared uh, technology on board should be more robust, should be able to tell us that something is up uh, and that we've got a sample that we shouldn't necessarily trust.
0: Okay. And so, when it comes to testing people, as you mentioned, the um, fuel cell is going to react with uh, with alcohol, but also presumably some volatile organic compounds. Where Where do we see these concerns? Like, does it react with things other than ethanol?
1: Right. So what we're talking about is specificity, and that is the question of does the machine uh, read or react to anything other than ethanol? Now, ethanol is an alcohol, but alcohol is a category of organic molecules that have an OH, an oxygen-hydrogen group attached to them. That's what makes them an alcohol. So there are other alcohols that uh, we would be concerned about, uh, primarily methanol which is a single-carbon alcohol, or isopropyl alcohol, which is rubbing alcohol, which is a three-carbon alcohol, compared to ethanol, which is a two-carbon alcohol, uh, fuel cells will react to alcohols in general. And so it isn't able to tell or isn't able to tell easily between methanol, ethanol, isopropanol when they're present. Uh, so you could have an instrument that was giving an erroneous reading because isopropyl alcohol was present and not ethanol. Uh, with the infrared devices, uh, there are lots of different organic molecules, uh, volatile organic molecules, that could be present on somebody's breath, and some of the ones we worry about are things like acetone um, and isopropyl alcohol, which can be present in the breath of uh, people for a variety of different reasons, which we'll get to momentarily. Um, but so the specificity is what we're concerned about. is there Are there other things that the instrument could uh, respond to that aren't ethanol? And so... Uh, when we're talking about specificity, that's what we're worried about. Now, let me shift gears for a second and talk about the different types of people who were typically concerned about uh, potentially being exposed to volatiles or having volatile organic compounds in their body for some reason. And the first category of people that I am concerned about are those that are exposed to the volatile organic compounds either at work or recreationally. And so, if you're somebody that works with solvents, uh, paint thinners, strippers, uh, a variety of other chemicals in your daily work, you know, you're probably uh, wearing a mask uh, to reduce your exposure. But maybe you not be right now. Inhaling? <laughs> uh, quite possibly. Uh, uh, wrong kind of mask, <laughs> probably. But anyway, uh, if you're exposed to volatile organic compounds that you inhale during the course of your employment those can get uh, absorbed into the body and you will exhale them in your breath for a period of time after you leave the job site if you've had enough exposure. And so you know, I've had people that were like uh, stripping the paint off their deck and repainting the deck and, and driving, driving home from the uh, job site got stopped for a traffic violation and the officer thought they looked funny, smelled funny, gave them a breath test and the breath testing instrument gave them a reading and he says, Ah, you've been drinking. i was like, No, we haven't been drinking. We're on our way to go drinking, but we haven't got there yet. I was like, well, how come your your machine is, you know, I'm, she's giving me a number? I was like, oh, well, I don't know. Maybe it's the, the stuff we were working with. But so, if you are exposed to those types of compounds, it can be a concern if you've gotten enough of them in your bloodstream. Uh, potentially, some of them could give erroneous readings.
0: And uh, the for. Just one one question on that. You said that they they would tend to leave your body as you' uh, over time. Is it different for every compound, the length of time that it takes to leave your body, or is it related to your amount of exposure or both?
1: It would be both. It's how much were you exposed and the, the volatility of the particular substance you were exposed to, So both of those uh, could be issues. Now I said that uh, we're concerned about both employment and recreational exposure. There are some volatile solvents that people inhale deliberately for their recreational effects. Uh, and I've had cases where people were inhaling uh, spray paint and gasket sealer and uh, glue and various things. And because they're volatile, and they can cause uh, psychoactive effects. But you will breathe them out again over time. And depending on how volatile it is and how much you inhale, it controls how long that stays in your system and how much of it gets out. Um, but we've had cases where uh, recreational exposure to these compounds have resulted in erroneous uh, breath alcohol readings as well.
0: Interesting. Okay. All right. the other... Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, you were about to tell me about the next one, so we're on the same page. (laughs)
1: Absolutely. All right, so the the next thing we're worried about actually affects three different categories of people with the same condition, uh, and that is people on fasting diets, diabetics, and alcoholics, and all get into a situation called ketoacidosis. And so when your body is in its normal metabolism, it breaks down sugar and uses it to create energy. Uh, if there is a problem in that system, either you're not feeding it right, in the case of the, of the people fasting, or in diabetics where your body has gone haywire and that function system no longer functions properly, your body will still keep looking for things to use for energy, and it'll start using other things than sugar, such as fat, uh, and when, you digest, or when, you, when your body uses fat as an energy source, it produces ketones as a byproduct. And some of those ketones are acidic, and so they will drop your blood pH and your blood will become acidic, and so that puts you in keto from the ketone acidosis or an acid blood condition. When you are in ketoacidosis, one of the ketones, the acetone, can be converted into isopropyl alcohol, and so now you've got acetone, a volatile molecule, And isopropyl alcohol, another volatile molecule in your breath that could potentially give erroneous readings on the different types of breath testing instruments on the fuel cells because of the isopropyl alcohol and on the infrared because of the acetone and the isopropyl alcohol. And so, you know, the fuel cell devices don't have typically mechanisms to detect isopropyl alcohol. The infrared instruments are supposed to have systems in place to detect the presence of other volatiles by comparing different wavelengths and the absorptions that take place. But unfortunately, isopropyl alcohol and ethanol have very similar absorbances, and so that tends to be somewhat tricky, especially in cases where somebody has uh, alcohol on board as well as being in ketoacidosis. And so we're just not sure how much of the reading is the contribution of one versus the other. Right.
0: So if you have somebody who's who's in diabetic ketoacidosis and they have a glass of wine, they might produce a reading that is reflective of of a reading for somebody who had four or five
1: or six glasses of wine right, and it's hard to say and and you know, typically, people can be typical who are in diabetic ketoacidosis or ketoacidosis in general are typically sick, but there are, are situations where you can be in ketoacidosis and not really have symptoms. In fact, uh, one of the articles that I sent you in our discussion by email was a recent article in the, the Journal Military Medicine talking about a sailor who was undiagnosed diabetic, didn't know he was diabetic at all, and had been out on a weekend pass, returned back to his ship, and they were screening the sailors on return for blood alcohol levels. They didn't want them going back on the ship with alcohol in their system. And he blew uh, a blood alcohol level on the screening device. and he's like, I didn't have anything to drink. I didn't drink anything all weekends. So I thought, that can't possibly be right. And so they sent him in for a medical referral to try and figure out what was going on and ended up diagnosing him as being in diabetic ketoacidosis and then having to treat his, his diabetes, but... He ended up finding out that he was in ketoacidosis from having an erroneous breath alcohol test.
0: Wow. Well, that's <laughs> that's good reason if you are uh if you are diabetic or if you think something's wrong to go to your doctor right after you've had a blood alcohol test that you don't think is is accurate because you know you only had one drink.
1: Right. And so uh the the thrust of that article, the, the important part was is that nobody knew or suspected that he was diabetic or that he was in ketoacidosis. He felt normal and had just had his weekend pass, came back and, and got the breath test that revealed his condition. I,
0: I had an adjudicator say to me once about, uh, I was making an argument about ketoacidosis, and, and they said, well, you know, it doesn't matter because the legislation prohibits you being over 80 milligrams of alcohol in 100 milliliters of blood. And if isopropanol or acetone are forms of alcohol, it doesn't matter what alcohol it is. If you produced a fail, you were over 80. Is that true?
1: No, not necessarily. And the reason I say that is that the breath testing instruments are calibrated to have a certain response to a certain amount of alcohol based on the partial pressure of alcohol. To uh, put that in human context, we've talked at so much points about a blood-breath ratio, you know, about a 2100 to 1 ratio that the machines are calibrated against to say, all right, if there's this much ethanol in the fuel cell or in the infrared chamber, that corresponds to this much ethanol in the blood. But isopropanol and acetone have different ratios, and so you can't use a device calibrated for ethanol to tell you how much isopropyl alcohol or, or acetone are present. So the number that you get is just not a reliable number if it's coming from something other than ethanol.
0: Now, what about the people who say, well, if you're testing on, you know, one of the fuel cells slash infrared instruments, you know, they're given profiles for acetone and isopropanol when they're Uh, when they're serviced, and and you can see from their service records that they've flagged acetone and they've kicked out the test. So we know that if if there's that present, it's going to detect it. Why would it not detect that?
1: Well, the situations I'm most concerned about is in situations where you've got combinations of ethanol and acetone and isopropanol, uh, because just detecting one thing by itself, often in a high concentration isn't necessarily a good test of the situation that the instrument's going to find itself trying to distinguish with a subject. So if you're going to come into court and try and validate the reading on a breath testing instrument, you need to have tested it under similar circumstances as it's being used in. So you know I'm not saying the machine can't tell if the acetone is present when that's all that's there. I want them to demonstrate that this device can do it not only when acetone is the only thing there, but when acetone is present with other things, you know, ethanol that it's supposed to look for and acetone and potentially even acetone and isopropyl alcohol, like when you got all three of those things or two of the three things, you know, does it still work the same way at levels you'd expect to see in subjects?
0: So the concern is that the ethanol might be masking the, uh, the other compounds and the instrument becomes unable to detect them.
1: Right. So the the way that they typically tell the difference is by comparing ratios of absorbances. And so if there's just one thing there, it's very clear that the ratio of absorbances is different than it is when ethanol is there. But when ethanol is there with it, is that still true? That's where I think they need to demonstrate that this instrument not only can do it when acetone or isopropanol is there by itself, but that it can do it when ethanol is there uh, at the same time.
0: So it's kinda of like the ethanol can function as a Trojan horse and sneak everything in along with it.
1: Uh, similar,
0: yeah, similar. <laughs> um, okay. So what what recommendations then do you have for people, Ron, who are concerned that this may have happened to them, either as a result of diet, medical condition, alcoholism, occupational exposure.
1: Well, certainly. And if you're given the opportunity and you think you might be in one of those situations, If you're offered the opportunity to take a a blood test, take the blood test. Blood testing technology is much more robust and should be able to tell the difference between acetone, isopropyl alcohol, ethanol by headspace gas chromatography. That is very simple, and and so that shouldn't be a problem, and so you won't get an erroneous reading. Um, If you are not offered the opportunity to take a blood test by the government, as soon as you're released, I would contact my doctor and say, hey, you know, I just had a, a... a breath test that I think is completely wrong, and I would like to get a blood test to confirm it. Can I come in and get a blood test to check for, you know, ketosis or, or ketoacidosis or, or what my ethanol level is? Because uh, I don't think it's what the breath test said it was. Um, because these circumstances are often related to uh, sugar metabolism. If you're a diabetic and you know it, uh, you probably have a blood sugar monitor. And potentially also a test for ketones, and so as soon as you're released, coming home, or having somebody bring you your your blood sugar monitor and test for ketones to document the your body's situation as soon after release as you can. If because uh, you might go
0: ahead. If you're testing for ketones, um, can you use those keto testers that people can get at the you know the supplement stores for testing for ketones on the ketogenic diet? Are those going to give the same information?
1: Right now, it may not be as as good as a laboratory test, but at least it would be some indications that we could use uh, to convince an adjudicator. the The reason why we suspect this the, the the reading is wrong is because the person's in ketosis. Here is some proof that the person was actually in ketosis. We've got a test that shows the presence of ketones. Uh, and while there might be issues with the specificity of of a, you know, a dip test, it's still better than nothing. You know, it's not like we're coming to the court and just trying to throw up a possibility of a defense, we actually have some information to indicate that this is an explanation as to why we believe that number is wrong. So it, it helps. Uh, you know, certainly getting a professional laboratory test done would be better, uh, but you know the, the dipstick tests are better than nothing.
0: Okay. What else can people do, especially people who think they have occupational or recreational exposure?
1: Uh, well, again, getting uh, a blood test or documenting the type of exposure whatever way you can, and if it's uh, an occupational exposure, um, you're probably going to be able to have a uh, material safety data sheet that you could get to describe what the chemicals are that you are working with so we can look at uh, its infrared absorption or its behavior of fuel cells compared to ethanol to see if there are similarities that could confuse the instrument because they don't test them against everything.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: So we'd want to try and document whatever your exposure was,
0: and then test it against the instrument separately by throwing it in a simulator, or
1: <laughs> right, or even putting it in a simulator with some ethanol and saying, "All right, you know, the, the instrument caught it when it was there by itself, but it didn't catch it when there was ethanol there." Uh, so if you've got the financial resources to have some additional testing done, and if somebody can get a hold of one of the instruments the government uses, uh, then we can challenge the instrument with the the chemicals that were used in the particular case.
0: All right. And Uh, do you have recommendations for the police or government or labs for what they should be doing with their instruments?
1: Well, I do. And uh, there are some government labs that rely on the manufacturer's uh, attestation that the device is designed to detect the volatile molecules that they're worried about, and you know, if you're the one that's getting up in court and saying, yes, I believe this instrument can do it, I think that you need more than that. I think that you need to have done some testing on the instruments yourselves. And actually, I think you need to have tested the individual instruments because those systems rely on appropriate calibration of the absorbances of different wavelengths or the response of the fuel cells. And so you need to check the individual instruments to make sure that those systems are functioning properly in that instrument and in the circumstances that it's likely to be used in. Uh, specifically the combinations of ethanol and other molecules in somebody who has a beer or two on the way home from how they were exposed or with their medical conditions they have, uh, it may not be the case. that There's no ethanol there. Uh, There's oftentimes some ethanol there, but also something else there. I want to make sure that the instruments have been demonstrated to be able to tell the difference between situations where uh, there's ethanol alone and ethanol with something else.
0: All right. Well, I think there's one recommendation missing from your list, Ron, and that's okay. If, what's that? If you find yourself in a situation where you uh, believe or suspect or know that you had a faulty reading due to an organic compound, hire an expert.
1: <laughs> uh, well, I and mean, first off, hire a really good lawyer that knows which experts to go. I uh, go hire, and then have them hire an expert to uh, be able to present your case with them. Um, but, yes, you need to hire a, a very competent attorney who knows to look for these types of, of defenses and to know to ask the questions. Uh, mm-hmm. It's one of the most important things is when you're choosing an attorney, that uh, they ask you the questions that could lead to the discovery and these types of defenses are applicable. Uh, and so when I was practicing, I had a, a full questionnaire. So we went through you know, all the things you did that day, all the things you could be exposed to, all the medical conditions you might have. And I even at times referred people for uh, medical consults when I thought that there was a possibility that person could have been diabetic. And I actually had a couple of clients come back and go, how did you know?
0: <laughs> I've had that, too. Well, yes. let me tell you. Yeah, you know, maybe you should go get your blood sugars tested. You might be diabetic. And then they come back, oh, gosh, I'm, I'm diabetic. Shocker.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, all right. Well, if people were wanting to hire your expertise or uh, get recommendations from you about somebody to hire, who, how could they contact you?
1: Oh, I work almost exclusively with the attorneys. I don't typically work with the clients themselves. Uh, so if they contact their attorney, their attorney will be able to contact me. I've got a website, uh, which is uh which most of the attorneys contact me through or have my phone number and call me directly. Uh, But I I generally don't work with the uh, the clients themselves. I work with the attorneys, uh, which helps insulate me from having hearsay information that could be compromised uh, if I end up testifying. I'd rather be able to rely upon the uh, attorney-client privilege and get my information from the attorney.
0: Makes perfect sense to me. So if you uh, are interested in talking more to Ron, hire me. (laughs) And I'll connect you with with Ron. Um, And if anybody has any questions, they, of course, can always uh, contact us um, at any point as well at uh, 604-685-8889. And thank you so much, Ron, for joining us on the podcast and explaining all of this, because I think it's really important information that people need to know um, when they're concerned about what's going on.
1: Absolutely. I've enjoyed uh, our conversation. I look forward to doing it again sometime soon.
0: Thank you again to Ron Moore for joining us on the podcast and sharing your insight. And now we welcome back, after two weeks of absence, well, I guess one and a half, because only half of this week's episode Time is irrelevant these days. co hostess with the mostest, Paul Doroshenko. Hello. Hi. Th- that was a weird hello. Yeah. I'm troubled.
2: Uh, I I used it somewhere and I just decided to duplicate it. It's been a long time. I can't remember where I used it before. I may have used it on the podcast. I don't know. Okay. Anyway, I'm glad to be back. Nice to see you. It's yeah. uh, hot in Vancouver and um, COVID-19 blues. Not feeling too blue right now.
0: Yeah. Well, I got the virus, and that's the thing. And now it's over. And now it's over. Anyway, I thought we should just dive right in, because we don't have a ton of time. We actually preserved these last few minutes of this podcast, because there's been... Big cell phone news. To talk about <wharp> this. <wharp> and you've been all over the news
2: about it. So everybody who's going to listen to the podcast has probably already seen you on the news, but they never flesh these <laughs> things out really, Kyla. So please explain to us. Oh, I don't know. I did I
0: did 15 minutes on the shift with Drex about I, it. Not
2: everybody listened to that. But yeah, they but should. Yeah, true. Not they everybody should.
0: was awake. No. <laughs> um, so what happened was there was a BC Supreme Court ruling that effectively overturns or maybe it doesn't, another distracted driving ruling that we had talked about earlier this year on the podcast. That case involved an individual whose phone was just resting on his lap, and um, he was ticketed for holding the device. The judicial justice, and very thorough reasons explained by holding, actually involves using your hands to grasp or hold the object, the implication being that your hands were involved. And... This case involved a man whose phone was wedged between his thigh and the seat, as I'm sure so we all have holding done. Holding it with his leg. Holding it in position with his leg screen facing up. Holding it. With holding his leg. it with his leg as Not opposed balanced to balanced on top of him. Resting it upon his leg. Yes. This may be the distinction that makes resting your phone on your legs still lawful, maybe. Don't try don't, it. Don't try don't try it.
2: it. Don't try it on the basis of that.
0: Please don't try it unless you would like to hire me for your ticket, in which case I still don't recommend it.
2: And beyond that, even if you run the trial, and you probably are, would end up in an appeal situation and you might not succeed on appeal after this decision.
0: Yeah, so, you know, be careful. So Um, this was a
2: Supreme Court decision. It
0: was an appeal. Yep, B.C. Supreme Court decision. The guy was convicted. He appealed. Uh, He had counsel on the appeal. They argued the case, the the holding with the hands case, um, and lost the B.C. Supreme Court justice, saying it's completely inconsistent with the whole purpose of the legislative scheme to say that you can have your phone being held by uh, your hands only, but not other parts of your body. Like It doesn't really change the risk.
2: See, I think this does totally overrule the decision from the B.C. Provincial Court. Mm Because the B.C. Provincial Court decision, we're talking about a J.J.P. We're now dealing with a um, Supreme Court judge who's reviewed the law, made a uh, careful consideration of what the intention is here, um, and uh, interpreted it in this way. So uh, I think the lack of clarity in the law, maybe before, has been more clarified, even though there was no reference to that decision.
0: Yeah, I mean... Maybe. I still see, like, a little tiny glimmer of light at the end of a very long tunnel, and perhaps it's an oncoming train, but I see a way to argue that there is a distinction. Um, because she did talk about the way the phone was being held, and she specifically said if he moved his leg, the phone would move.
2: Yeah, see, I, I still, I don't think that, I don't think that saves it. I don't think that saves it.
0: Well, this is the question. I know if you hear a strange noise in the background, it is my dog, Wrigley, who you've normally heard in the background barking. He won't bark today. He just got out of the hospital. Um, he's got pancreatitis, and uh, he's...
2: Doing better because he's out of the hospital. Yes, but he's, but he's licking quiet.
0: himself a lot.
2: He's quiet as opposed to his normal barking self. Yeah, I
0: mean, here. he's just, he's he's got to rest.
2: But I want to get back to this decision because Wrigley is really not involved in the decision.
0: No, he's not.
2: Um, I think this is it. I mean, I think if it's, if your phone is not fixed or in a cup holder, um, you know, if you've got it on your body where you're resting it on your body, I think in any way, except in a pocket, you got a problem.
0: I don't know that you can say that this is it because this decision could be appealed. We're still in the appeal period. Um, it's one that, you know, well, would be a tough case on an appeal, has an argument, and it might be worthy of bringing it to the Court of Appeal just to get their input and to get a final word in the province about the interpretation of this provision. I mean, people on Twitter were saying, will this go to the Court of Appeal? So people are interested enough that they think that it should be reviewed by BC's highest court.
2: I don't think that it's necessary. I think the purpose of the Superior Court is to resolve these things, and there's clarity in the law now, and everybody just has to abide by it, and that's where we go, and right or wrong um it's a ticket after all i don't think it's a ticket that necessarily needs to go to the court of appeal there's certainly tickets that need to go to the court of appeal but i wouldn't say that this is one that desperately needs to go to the court of appeal to determine whether or not we can pinch our phone underneath our leg in the car right there are a couple of very simple alternatives right you're allowed to put it in your cup holder
0: yep you are allowed to put it in a cup holder you could put it in your pocket you could put it...
2: You can put it somewhere else in the car in that's securely mounted, even if it's not securely mounted in the end because you have to slam on the brakes. Yeah. You know, you can, yeah, you can have it in your shirt pocket. You can have it in your pants pocket. You can have it in your jacket pocket. In your purse. You can have it in your purse. So, you know, all of those things are available. You can have it connected in all of those different places. Yeah. Um, it's just an issue of not having it in it being held. And if you're holding it with your leg or holding it with your hand, you're holding it.
0: So, speaking of people who are holding their phones while driving, I thought we should spend a minute on our Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week.
2: This is a ridiculous one. It's actually quite surprising and and startling. And when you see this happen, you're thinking to yourself, you know, man, you should know better.
0: I I do think, yeah, you should know better, but I don't think it's surprising or startling at all. This, this, uh, what we're talking about is the video that surfaced this week, briefly posted on the NHL Twitter account.
2: On the actual NHL Twitter account. I couldn't believe it.
0: Yeah. They deleted. Jake Vertanen, who uh, I, if you don't know, is the forward for the Vancouver Canucks. 23 years old. Which I I learned yesterday.
2: (laughs) I've never heard of him. I'm not a hockey fan never have been
0: anyway yeah 23 years old driving in some right hand drive car
2: i don't know that he was in a right hand drive car that was just the way the video was
0: you could because you could see where the edge of the road was
2: oh could you yeah
0: so it was right hand drive car
2: sure looked like it was out in langley somewhere
0: sure looked like it was on highway one somewhere
1: yeah
0: (laughs) the highway that goes across canada anyway he's holding his phone filming himself while he's driving and he takes the phone and pans his body so that you can see he's wearing basically his entire hockey uniform including like the hockey pants and stuff hopefully not the skates you couldn't see his feet um while he was driving and he posted it to make a joke of the fact that he felt like he was back in the peewee you know League. leagues because you'd get you know dressed up for hockey at home and your mom would drive you in your hockey gear or whatever i don't know i assume, I assume that's how it happens yeah i, I never played know. hockey as no, a child i did
2: play hockey but
0: Anyway, so this, is, this was the joke. A funny joke. A joke that would have been just as impactful had he taken the photo while the vehicle was not moving on a on highway. On a highway. But,
2: at 120 kilometers an hour.
0: But, you know, poor judgment. Not surprising, though. Kids are doing this all the time. It's, it's every day now I see an Instagram story or a Facebook Live or a Snapchat of somebody filming themselves while they were driving. How many employees... There are three of our employees that I know of that have done this.
2: Uh, We've had to...
0: Four. Four. Four.
2: People we've had to talk to when we found out that this has happened.
0: Yes. Please don't do this while you're working for us. Or at all, because it's also illegal, but especially not while you're working for Acumen Law.
2: yes, when I see the... um... See uh, someone posting that they're coming across Canby Bridge and how beautiful it is. And they're taking a video of themselves driving across Canby Bridge. Yeah. Yeah. The police like to park at the uh, at the north end of Canby Bridge.
0: Yeah. On their
2: motorcycles <laughs> and just wait.
0: With their spotting scopes.
2: With their spotting scopes.
0: So that happened. And uh, obviously Bertanen is facing a lot of backlash. I had a lot of people asking me if he could be charged.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a legitimate question. Of course he can be charged. Um, would they charge him? Probably not. There's a bunch of things they have to prove like time and date. Yeah. And location. Um, location. Uh, they're, you know, there are things that they might be able to prove, um, mm-hmm. if they investigated it. Is it worth doing it in this case? I think probably the public interest is not there. Uh, I, he's see- been, he's been chastised.
0: That's where I I disagree. I think there is a level of public interest in doing it. I I don't think they'd be able to gather the evidence, but yes, they could charge him. Um, But there's a, I don't, I think there is a level of public interest because of the prevalence of this type of behavior and its growing popularity. Having somebody who has millions of followers across his various platforms um, and huge amount of reach getting chastised by a law enforcement agency for this might, tell other 23, impressionable 23-year-olds, don't do that.
2: Yes, well, a phone call from uh, a high-ranking member in the Integrated Road Safety Unit from who, you know, serves from the uh, Second Narrows Bridge to, or from the uh, Portman Bridge to Chilliwack might want to uh, look him up and call him on his cell phone and let him know that uh, he should probably make some public apology for it
0: yeah i mean if i were if i were advising him in my capacity as a you know public relations and and uh um, marketing specialist i would advise him to immediately make some type of a donation to some distracted driving charity organization and uh issue a public statement about the dangers of distracted driving
2: i didn't i don't know if there's such a distracted driving oh yeah for sure there is he could donate
0: NDD.ca.
2: He could end to the podcast. Donate to the podcast. <laughs> donate
0: to the Driving Law Podcast.
2: He could we come will... on. He could come on to the Driving Law Podcast yeah. and make a public apology.
0: Jake Vertanen, if you're listening. You're and I'm invited. Sure you're not. You're invited on the podcast. You can talk about what you've learned. You don't have to apologize. Talk about what you've learned.
2: We all make mistakes. Yeah. And when we're 23, we tend to make more <laughs> mistakes.
0: You know the stuff that I did when I was 23 that I cannot say on this podcast because the limitation period... Is not expired. What, this, <laughs> I just said I there's can't no, say it. There's no limitation exactly. period on indictable offenses. Exactly. I
2: can say actually when I was 23 is when I was first accepted to university, and I thought, holy shit, I better get my act together and not do anything stupid anymore. And so I've been living the clean life since then. I think, Hard I, think to I was. Believe I'm 52.
0: I, I was in second year of law school, so.
2: Yeah. Well. I was uh, I was just starting my BA, and I thought, you know what, I better not make any mistakes. I was pulled over once after drinking some beer with one of my professors, and I was driving to my dad's place to do my laundry, and the officer did not even lean down ah! to me. Oh, there's Wrigley, uh, and uh, I'll tell you, I've lived in fear ever since. I probably was well under the limit, uh, but I was it was absolutely terrifying. That was the closest I came.
0: Well. Glad to know it. It
2: wasn't, he gave me a ticket. It wasn't a valid ticket.
0: Thankfully, (laughs) you did not have the public profile of Jake Vertanen, so... Not then, but
2: now, obviously, I do. (laughs) I mean...
0: Yeah, with your, what, what your 7,000 Twitter followers? Something like that. I think Jake has a few more than you, Paul. Yeah, probably does. (laughs) Okay, He has fans. Yeah, I'm your fan. I'll be your fan. Thanks, Kyla. I appreciate
2: that. I'm your fan.
0: I'm your your fan for pity. Anyway, I'll (laughs) take the pity fan. All
2: right. Um, Well, thanks a lot for listening to Driving Law with Kyla Lee because uh, I'm going to force it to wrap up. You can finish it now,
0: Kyla. I was actually trying to force you to wrap up. So now you've stolen my wrap up. If you have a driving law related issue or if you are a prominent NHL player who wants to be featured on this podcast, give us a call 604-685-8889 or find us online VancouverCriminalLaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.